Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. After a week dominated by Dominic's comings and goings, we are still in lockdown and keeping a safe distance from each other. I'm here as ever with Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Morrison Bowie. Hello, Barney. And this week, we welcome the great John Ingham into our virtual cupboard. Hi, John. Good morning. How are you? Very well. John has joined us to discuss his long and fascinating career. He will also be, I hope, talking to us a bit about John Peel and even possibly about Lady Gaga, though I'm not going to hold him to that. John, it's lovely to have you here. You've been on Roxback Pages for a good number of years, and you are in many ways one of the key music journalists. One of the things that fascinates me about you is that we have been able to showcase three pieces by you. The first of which is seeing Aretha Franklin at the Fillmore West in 1971. And the second is interviewing the Sex Pistols when they're only four months old. I don't think there are many music writers who could sort of have that essentially in their CV. How do you get from Aretha at the Fillmore to the Sex Pistols in Soho? Even more interesting, would how would I be get from the Grateful Dead to Aretha to the Sex Pistols? And, <laughs> which is kind of how it all started in many ways. I was living in California. How did you get to California? Why? Why California? Okay. My mother had this uh, incredible urge and dream to go and live in, in the United States, uh, which, hard as it is to believe now, certainly in the 50s was probably the most amazing place on earth that you could live. And she'd had this very long-held desire to get there. So she succeeded. She was a teacher. And we were living, I spent pretty much 13 to 21 in the West Coast of America, ending up in Los Angeles in 1969. And I was there to go to California Institute of the Arts, which is better known as CalArts. And there was a guy called Robert Criscow, who was the Village Voice music critic, who had been hired as a popular culture lecturer. So I took that class because it sounded interesting. And in the first week, he handed out a bunch of records to everybody in the class and said, I want you to write a review. And the next week after we handed them in, he said, you're the only guy in the class that has a hope of knowing how to write. If you'd like to, I'll teach you how to become a rock critic. So I said, yes, and off we went. And that kind of, he opened the door, he talked to the editors at Cream, and so I got to know them and started posting pieces there, and also, and then it grew, I did some stuff for Rolling Stone, for a Boston paper called Fusion, yeah. um, some others. So I was writing, and the Aretha Franklin piece was for Cream. So you were, I mean, really in at the dawn of, you know, American rock criticism. I mean, I remember the first time I opened an old copy of cream and saw your name in there and i just hadn't realized that you kind of went back that far and knew these guys so you have a fascinating perspective john i would imagine on the kind of evolution of what rocks back pages is all about yeah i'd say so my first published piece was december of 1970 and before then i picked up i saw my first copy of rolling stone it was think it was issue number nine I mean, you know, it had Grill Marcus in it. It had Nick Toshes who was writing at that point. It had people who were really good, and that was exciting. The photography was the photography was the thing that really caught my attention, and that was all people like Jim Marshall and Baron Wallman. Mm-hmm. And somewhere along the line, I realized these guys were getting their records free. 
And since I, sp- <laughs> I spent all my money on records, so I thought, well, this is a good deal. Uh, let's how, many, how many rock critics have you had come on this podcast and say exactly that? It's great. <laughs> <laughs> Probably every one of them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What was so, the first piece, John? Grand Funk Railroad at the oh, uh, Inglewood <laughs> Forum. Well, they were a Detroit band, and Chris Gow really liked them. He's, oh. I mean, I mean, he saw them as a working class He's kept quiet band. about that, I think, isn't he? No, well, he's... No, I don't think he's ever afraid to say what he likes. Actually, you know, Barney, you, a lot of the Americans, surprisingly, I mean, Lenny Kay liked Grand Funk. True. Our kind of total rejection of them as this kind of construct. You know, yeah, I, I think what, what John's saying is, is right, that the surprising number of very good American critics had quite a lot of time, certainly in the, for the early iteration of... Grand Funk Railroad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And let's not forget Todd Rundgren produced a big hit album. You know, we're an American band, which I think yeah. sums it up. Anyway, that was the first. <laughs> that was the first piece. And the funniest part of that was I went with Chris Gow, and he he takes a paperback book to every concert he goes to, or did then. Uh, so he would, while you're waiting for the band who are inevitably late, he'd be reading. And then in the middle of the gig, when it got boring, he just pulled his book out and started reading till it got interesting again. <laughs> so you were in in California, both yeah. Northern California and Southern California. <clears throat> Obviously, you had to go to Northern California to see the Queen of Soul at the Fillmore West. Yeah. So were you just were you going sort of back and forth between the two cities? Well, before LA, I was living in Fresno, which is kind of midway between LA and and San Francisco. That's and, where your mother moved to, was Fresno. Well, I mean, the, the, the long detail is we moved, we were in Can- Vancouver in Canada, and then we moved to Eugene, Oregon, where she went to the U of O and picked up a master's. So uh, in 1966, Eugene was kind of like San Francisco North because Ken Kesey was from Eugene. Indeed. And uh, so I saw a couple of bands who were can barely remember their names now who came through but there was a lot of that's how we knew about things like Rig Brother and Grateful Dead and Country Joe very very early on in Eugene like middle 66 mm-hmm. I would that's know about those bands. so you knew about like the acid tests and things like that yeah 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 absolutely and the Oracle newspaper was being sold in Eugene there was a head shop <laughs> this new idea <laughs> I remember very much someone came in to the school's drama class and he had the first Jefferson Airplane album and this guy was the school folky and he was really like going you've got to hear this record and someone turned around and said is this what they mean by that word psychedelic <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so my first ever concert we went to San Francisco in Easter 67 my first real concert was going and seeing Big Brother at the Avalon Fantastic. With my mother in tow, 15 years old. What an extraordinary oh, childhood. <laughs> I mean, there really can't be many. Well, you you were born here in the UK, I take it. I was born in Sydney, Australia. You were, but, right, hence, do you still have a, a, a tinge a of Australian bit, yeah. in your accent? It'll, you, it'll come out sometimes, mate. <laughs> <laughs> but you have had an extraordinary journey. I mean, yeah. it, it sounds like a kind of... It sounds like a kind of Hollywood movie, this going from <laughs> Eugene, Oregon to Fresno to... Anyway, amazing. And your mum taking you, dropping you off at the Avalon Ballroom. Oh, no, no, she came in. <laughs> oh, she, she came, came in. Oh, no, yeah, she came in. It was... It was um, what a cool woman. The, and uh, oh, the, the funnier one was we went to... Uh, I was reading Ralph Gleason a lot because the the Chronicle was in Fresno at the high school that I went to. And he was raving about B.B. King. 
And I thought, this sounds really interesting. And we were going to San Francisco. So I, she came to see B.B. King with me. And they gave her a chair. She was sitting in the middle of the dance floor, well, in front of it, because everyone was sitting down. And we were like, what, 20 feet from the stage? And she's sitting there, 45, 50, something like that. 45, probably. Sat and watched B.B. King do his full review while I'm on the floor next to her with the birds and the electric flag supporting. Fantastic. How it was amazing. I have to say that's one of the best things I've ever seen. B.B. King in full flight with a 15-piece band behind him. Amazing. You know, powder blue suit and a red Lucille. Wow. <laughs> How blue can you get? <laughs> I mean, your, your review of Aretha's famous show at the Fillmore is wonderfully kind of vivid. It really brings the event to life. Thank you. Do you still remember shows like that? Oh, yeah. I remember, I mean, yeah, there's a lot you forget, but there's a lot that really stick out of that period, definitely. Jefferson Airplane, were, who were my favorite band, really, over the period, and The Grateful Dead. I mean, people forget Grateful Dead was seriously a radical band. I mean, they were just like a freeform jazz band in many ways. And I liked that because they were just so weird. That, I saw them three or four times at least. When no one, you know, I mean, literally, you could see like a hundred people outside of San Francisco would go and see it. And Jefferson Airplane was really memorable, mainly because they are extraordinary musicians mm. as individuals. Um, what else do I remember? Those would be the high ones. I mean, Country Joe, I remember that? The Doors. I saw the Doors on the night I graduated from high school. <laughs> <laughs> which also, which also memorably was the first time Jumping Jack Flash came booming out of a car radio. Well, that, that, those are good memories. I remember talking to you in the past, John, about seeing, I think, the first time the Eagles played at the Troubadour in L.A. Right. So you were, you were in, in L.A. in 72. Um, yeah. And I remember interviewing you about that, about that time, and you were very funny about that Eagles show, uh-huh. as I recall. The Eagles, yeah, the Troubadour had tables that came out from the stage in a long line. So we're all sitting, like, we're sitting literally at the feet of Jim Messina. Richard Meltzer, the famous R. Meltzer, was sitting opposite me looking very, very bored. And, of course, the whole place is effusive and everything's going on. And these guys are, as you look down the row of, of the band, like you know, almost in profile because I was right next to the stage, all you could see were all these shiny white teeth and big grins from the band. <laughs> and Mel- Meltzer at one point picked up his beer bottle and starts banging it on the table out of time with the song. And Messina just stared down at him while he's singing the harmonies and the eyes just came back up to stare out at the back of the room and he never looked down again. It was quite funny. Is that that's Poco we're talking about, I'm guessing? I know, okay, yeah, no, I'm, I'm right. Who would that be? Whoever's at the far end of the stage from Glenn Frey. Uh, well, because Messina, I don't think played I thought Messina, with the Eagles. It wasn't Messina, no, Messina wasn't. I, mean, I have to say, the Eagles are not my favourite band. Um, so you're entitled, <laughs> you're entitled to get the, the the personnel wrong. Is it I think. Randy yeah. Meisner? Would it be Meisner? That, that would be the band. Yes, they all look the same. Long haired guys, <laughs> yeah, they, teeth, they were all know. the same, wearing double denim with with long hair. Yeah, and got a leather waistcoat, dusting of white powder under their nostrils. <laughs> <laughs> no, they couldn't afford that at that point. That was. Oh, I bet dumb, they I could. <laughs> <laughs> I think the most interesting thing was watching 
British bands touring America. I saw Zeppelin on their second tour. That was May of 69. By summer of 71, I think they'd come through about six times through Los Angeles. The faces, the same kind of thing. You'd go and see these guys, and you'd see them every four months, five months. Humble Pie was another one. They just toured incessantly. The great bitch from English fans at the time, those guys go to America and never come back. I mean, the number of times Led Zeppelin toured the UK was minuscule compared to the number yeah, of times sure. they toured, toured the States. And the faces that she lived in America from sort of 73 on, you know, it, it was quite extraordinary. We, we just never got to see those bands. It uh, wouldn't surprise me. I mean, I saw, I try to add them up. The faces I saw one, two, three, four times in the space mm-hmm. of about a year, year and a half. Similarly, Zeppelin. They came. They must have come five times, six times easily. <laughs> they, you'd be at somewhere like the Forum, and there would just be this announcement of Led Zeppelin, and every girl in the place would start screaming. <laughs> <laughs> the new Beatlemania. It was. It was definitely. I mean, it'd be quite. We could just jump forward very abruptly to this little paragraph from your interview with the Sex Pistols, because it is just the antithesis. Of all of that, John, flared jeans were out, leather helped, all black was better. Folks in their late 20s, chopped and channeled teenagers, people who frequent sex, the King's Road Avon leather, rubber and bondage clothing shop, people sick of nostalgia, people wanting forward motion, people wanting rock and roll that is relevant to 1976. So what would my question be? Um, <laughs> when you first saw, like, when you first saw the pistols, I mean, did you just instantly and instinctively feel this is just turning over the tables of of everything that I've been writing about for what would it be at that point? Uh, six five, years. Six five years. years. Yeah, five mm. years. Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've been. I've been. I've been fed up with what was coming out for a good year, at least, really getting bored with it all. Uh, there was so much self-congratulation happening at the time. I just felt like there's got to be something new. And I went looking for it. And I was out there a lot, just going and seeing bands and, and following my instincts and asking people and following up what they had said would be was good. Mm. And it all just felt like continuations of the same thing. Pub rock really, really <laughs> niggled at me. It was just, it was so ordinary, with the rare exception of Kilburn and the High Roads. Yeah. So I used to go and see them quite a bit and have interesting, very interesting talks with Ian Dury. And they were kind of conceptual, which I liked the idea of a lot. And so it was like, can you find something else like that that comes all fully packaged? And to me, image was always, always has been, still is really important about what a band looks like. It has to tell you it can't be ordinary. Yeah. Guys in denim, I mean, Christ, I can walk down the street being that guy. I mean, I want something <laughs> that you, you know. I want, I want God. I want him to come from Olympus, tell, <laughs> tell it all to me in the key of E for two hours, and then go back home yeah, up yeah. there in the guards. Then the you know, there'd been quite a bit of stuff in the pistol on the pistols in the various pages of the music press, and they were all kind of going on about one the the fact. One, the name got me. I loved that name the second I saw it. The fact that everyone was so upset about them, that sounded, <laughs> that would make it interesting. And people kept saying on about they can't play, which kind of intrigued me. I was like, okay, let's see what that's about. And so when I saw them, I was kind of predisposed in a way. 
that that they <laughs> they better be good, <laughs> or I'd be very disappointed. Now, I mean, it's really interesting is, is that the mythology is that the NME was the great paper that sort of backed punk, but actually sounds <clears throat> and Melody Maker got there first, and you in particular got there first. And well, Caroline Kuhn on, on the Maker. Can you write one of the very first pieces on Epistle? Mm. It is the first. It's the first yeah. interview. Right. Yes, first interview. And that came about because when they played El Paradise Strip Club, which is where I saw them, that was a Sunday night. And so on Monday when I came into the office, the editor, who was Alan Lewis, asked me, he said, so what were they like? And I was talking to him about it, and he just kept getting this very bemused look on his face and didn't say much. And then he said, I want you to do an interview with them. And I protested about that. And he said, do you realize how long you've been talking about it? I said, no, he goes, 15 minutes. You've been going on 15 minutes. Go out there and get a story. <laughs> and that seems to be the effect they had on everybody the first time people saw them. <laughs> They'd end up talking to you know, their wife or, or their friends or whatever forever about this weird new band. Nearly all of it down to John, of course. Yeah, well, without, John, John, I mean, without John, there's just three guys who can play reasonably, basically. Mm-hmm. Well, there's this just, I mean, Leiden is in full flow almost straight away. And he, I mean, <laughs> I hate shit. I hate hippies and what they stand for. I hate long hair. I hate pub bands. I want to change it so that there are rock bands like us. And you say, this is delivered at full tirade with a sneer to match the voice. He clocks my tortoiseshell earring, the five weeks laziness straggling across my cheeks and chin, and the sneer and the direct eye blitz never stops. I'm inadvertently thinking, gosh, I'm not a hippie now. That was a childhood error, and I never was one in the first place. (laughs) Which it's is great. True. So you have this. You have a conversation with Lyon. You realise you're not a hippie anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, the funny thing was, he was he came in late. We were sit, we were at a pub called the Cambridge Arms on the Cambridge Circus. Yeah, yeah. Upstairs in this empty mm-hmm. room, sticky carpet, the whole bit. And they were talking about John in the third person. He wasn't there. And when he came in, there he came in with two girls, and they sat down about I don't know ten feet or more away in some chairs. And kept on talking among themselves. And the ba- and the band and McLaren, who was there, kept talking about him as though he wasn't there still, which I thought was, well, that was odd. And he was looking quite bored. And, I, and then I finally said, okay, they've been talking about you. What do you think? And that's when he lit up and, and went into that tirade. So up until then, he'd just kind of been very neutral. He hadn't done anything, hadn't said anything, hadn't made any kind of presence felt. And then someone, it was just like a switch turned on. It was absolutely instant. <laughs> and yeah. McLaren, I could see McLaren out of the corner of my eye, and he's kind of watching me, and he's watching John, and you can sort of see this look on his face, like, you know, the Larry Pounds look, oh, my goodness, what have I got here? And at the same time, he's kind of looking at a lab experiment. You know? That is really interesting, yeah, because, I mean, if that was the first interview, that's the first time McLaren saw rotten being interviewed and yeah oh, absolutely giving quote you know being john i mean being, it was, being it, john. it's one of those things you know more and more i especially from following them really closely for the rest of that year you realize that people like john and someone like mick jagger say and that kind of you know like serious presence that just lifts a room because of who they are that's just accident you know, they come fully formed. You either got mm-hmm. the guy in your group or you don't. You don't create those people. And that really struck through as he got better and better at being John Rotten. Yeah, yeah. 
Not only did you write about and document not just the Pistols, but a lot of the, the punk bands in that year, and you, you mentioned Caroline Kuhn also in the third piece we've got, which is you're looking back at that year mm. of 76, but you also took these great photographs of the scene, which, which really do document what it must have felt like. I mean, did you feel that, that sort of by, should we say, like a mid-77, that the, the really kind of great moment had already sort of peaked and passed? Is it really, is it in many ways about 76 for you? Well, 77 is really interesting, I think, in the, in, in the sense that people took the next steps forward. It stopped being this kind of secret club for both better and for worse. The, the, the idea, you know, and the idea of you don't need to know more than three chords. Here's, three, here's a chord, here's another chord, here's a third, go start a band. The problem was, I think it started getting codified by the end of 77, you know, and, and this kind of year zero mentality that anything before 1977 or 76 was terrible, which was patently idiotic. Mm. And then it turned into business. You know, the record companies came in, the managers came in. I remember very much seeing Miles Copeland with Stuart very early on and that kind of Miles going to Stuart, this is the future, you better find yourself a punk band was he formed the police so it became business it became about money it became about you know doing all the things that everybody had ever done uh, in terms of making records go on tour be famous but i think that the, the spirit certainly carried on and it carried on until we got to you know i think by the end of duran duran say early 80s 83 84 mm-hmm. then it's then we're now we're back to you know the ideas were carrying forward, but then they got muted as well, and it just became business as usual again. Next generation of kids, great, throw them up the charts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> serendipitously, we're adding this week a retrospective piece about Eater, and um, I stumbled on <laughs> I stumbled on this quote in it. Hey, don't knock it. By, by Kieran <laughs> Tyler from 2002 for Ugly Things. You, you know Johan Kugelberg, don't you? Mm-hmm. I'm sure. Because, I mean, didn't he write the foreword to your Spirit of 76? Uh, John, John Savage wrote the foreword, John. but it was, it was Johan Kugelberg who kicked the whole thing off when he saw my photo. So this is a piece from Johan's Ugly Things, and it's Andy Blade of Eater, who were all about 14 or 15. 15 and he's yeah. reminiscing. He says, I rang up John Ingham from Sounds and persuaded him to come see us rehearse. We'd read his article about the pistols and we were really keen. We liked the bit that said you don't have to play. I said we we were a punk band. He came to see us with Rat Scabies, who said he knew a guy who played drums better than my brother. John said, my advice is get this guy in, speed all your, or maybe it was Rat who said that. I'm not sure. It says he said probably rats saying my advice get this guy and speed all your songs up and then you'll be a proper punk band the following week it was in sounds so it was official eater were a punk band (laughs) (laughs) i just love that it's all true it's all true i can remember in fact i remember it very well they're in a rehearsal room usually in a basement i'm sure the drummer the drummer is all of 12 and a half years old his name is degenerate and, um, of course. <laughs> and they did I'm 18 by Alice Cooper and I looked at him and I said how old are you and he said I'm 15 I said then why are you singing about being 18 you don't know anything <laughs> about it and they changed it to I'm so 15 cha- I said you should change it to your own age and Andy took that and ran with it <laughs> that is just brilliant uh, it's a shame they didn't rec- I don't think they ever recorded I'm 15 but I'd like to oh. have heard it I must say so 
tell us what happened, you know, in the wake of punk. I mean, you carried on writing, but your career took various twists and turns. I mean, you ended up as head of content at CompuServe here in the UK. So, so sketch out for us how you got from Eater to CompuServe. <laughs> okay, so I'll, I'll do this as short quickly as I can. <laughs> 77, I started managing Generation X, which we called ah. Idol. Did that for a year. And, Sir William uh, of Idol. Sir <laughs> William of Idol. Yeah. And the, the uh, I won't mention him by name. Um, they were basically unmanageable. You know, the two main guys. And uh, there's, there's probably a, a full football team of ex-managers for Billy. Um, <laughs> who, who, by the way, I will defend I will defend to the end for making some really great records in, oh, the, in the 80s. Yeah, yeah. That stuff is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and holds up, really yeah. holds up. Um, anyway, that took a year out. Um, I went to Los Angeles at the end of 77 to spend Christmas with my mother, and it was a mid-January day, and it was 25 degrees and clear sky, and I'm thinking, why am I in London where everything's cold and miserable and wet when I could be here? So I moved back to L.A. and got a job doing special effects for movies. And like pre-computer graphics, it was very early days of computer computer animation. And at the same time, picked up managing a punk group, L.A. punk group called The Weirdos. Oh, the also unmanageable. I seem to have a talent for them. <laughs> Attracted <laughs> like a moth to a flame. <laughs> but the, but the, the best thing that came out of it was I kept, you know, I had this day job doing this stuff. But then all these punk bands in L.A. started coming up to me and going, I don't really want to manage it, but I've got this, you know, I've got a record company putting a contract in front of me. Would you help me go through the contract and, and negotiate it? Or I'm going on a tour. Would you be tour manager and set up all the gigs and the dates and everything? So I started having these great sort of one or two month associations with bands, one of whom I'll also recommend the plugs, P-L-U-G-Z who were incredible. They were great. Um, two of them from Texas, Chicago, and then they'd have a bass player, whoever was, you know, they'd go through a variety of bass players across the years. But, you know, great singers, great songwriters, great players. And then I started a club called The Fake Club, which was based on people, you know, like Blitz here, uh, where they'd hire a club for a, a, a night. Oh, that's another thing that came out of punk. There was a guy called Steve Harrington who kept bugging Generation X when they'd go, we'd go out west. And he was from Wales, and he'd come and see any gig going. And then he asked us to drive him back up to London because he wanted to move to London from where he was. And the next thing I knew, there was, he was this guy called Steve Strange. <laughs> So I'd, I'd seen Steve at Blitz, and I thought, this is a cool idea. There's nothing happening in L.A. So I started a club in a cocktail lounge in Hollywood once, uh, twice a week. So we were the first person to break a lot of records coming out of New York, coming out of London. We were playing stuff nobody was playing. And at its peak, we'd have 1,000 people a night, $5 at the door, no guest list. It was up to the, the doorman to let you in. And famously told Brit Eklund she couldn't come in because she didn't have ID. So <laughs> it was one of those things where you'd look around and you go, oh, there's Prince. Oh, that's Susan Sarandon. Oh, there's Richard Gere. It was very weird. Wow. It, it was very down market. There was nothing fancy about this place except that it was a 1950s cocktail club in Hollywood. I did meet you once in LA at, at that time. I think yeah. it would have been 82 or 83. 82, yeah. And I have a memory of you. I, I, I'm 
you know, to me, was someone like the Hollywood Hills or yeah. Los Feliz or Silver Lake or someone like that. I remember, I remember you opening a door slightly furtively and wondering what I was doing there. <laughs> <laughs> Train inquiries around the back, please. Yeah, no, it was um, for, people who know, for, people, for people who know Los Angeles, it was at the top, very top of Gower Street, above Franklin Avenue. That makes I could sense. see the Capitol building from my front door. Art Garfunkel lived down at the other end of this little dead-end street about, like, 200 metres away. Yeah. No, was, wonder, no wonder you missed London so much. It was a very Hollywood... <laughs> it, was, it was the best Hollywood fantasy because here I was living in, in what had been the maid's quarters of a, of a huge mansion in Hollywood, looking over the entire basin, and just, you know, and a great time to be in L.A. It was incredibly amazing creatively. There was a huge crossover between film directors like Jonathan Demme and actors. Used to see Jeff Goldblum at all sorts of concerts. Mm. The music people were, were interacting with all of that. The art crowd were interacting with all of that. And you'd have people like, you know, talking about people who came through town all the time, talking heads, would come to L.A. and do three or four different gigs around the city. I can remember. I mean, I would go and see them three times every time they came to LA. So yeah, it was just incredibly creative. And then it peaked at uh, it peaked with the Olympic Games. And at which point, and the other thing was the Japanese. All the Japanese creative people were coming into town at that point. So we were very. We were, it was kind of this creative inundation. And so early '85, I got a letter from a guy called Morgan Fisher, who'd been in the Hoople, and we were quite friendly. And he was in Tokyo, and he said, how would you like to come to this? The letter opened with the first sentence. How would you like to move to Tokyo and change your entire life? Thought, <laughs> okay, that sounds like an interesting idea. That sounds like a part of the course for you. Yeah, really. well, I mean, it was. I was in a position where, I mean, what do you do with a club that runs twice a week? It's got a shelf life. And gone on from that, there was a video bar down in West Hollywood. There was like a disc, it was a, it was a bar, and they had huge video screen, and they would play music videos rather than having a DJ playing records. So I did that for a year, running running all the video stuff. And I was kind of making quite a bit of money, but it was one of those things of, what am I going to do next? It's not like a career path. <laughs> and then this letter came, I thought, Tokyo, that sounds pretty cool. <laughs> and a few letters later in a plane flight, and I was living in Tokyo, working at an ad, ad agency. And I did six years of that. Wow. And worked for, a, and after about three years, I joined a, company, a record label called MIDI, which was an independent, very rare in Japan to have an independent. And they, their main artist was Ryuichi Sakamoto and his wife, Akiko Yano, and some other really amazing. I mean, you know, the, the Japanese artists who are creative and can write, they, they're phenomenal. So that's what I did for three years was uh, work with those guys. And, and Sakamoto was very interesting as well in the sense that he was very famous. He, had, he was surrounded by people who would tell him yes. That was, the, you know, like the, the standard answer. And he had a childhood friend who was his one guy he would count on to tell the truth. And he, that person drowned in a, in a Christmas swimming accident. And so now he was cast adrift. There was nobody who around him he would trust to be completely honest the whole time. 
And to watch all that take long-term effect was fascinating in, in one respect and quite sad in another, because he was really adrift in many ways, while simultaneously creating some of the best music of his career. You know, he's doing Handmaid's Tale and Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. He did the album with, uh, you know, he did this album, Neo Geo, that had a lot of early sampling in it. The tracks with Iggy Pop, tracks with Brian. He's got, there's a track that's got Brian Wilson, Yusu Endur, and Robert Wyatt doing the backing vocals. <laughs> that's that's not pretty, not that's, presumably all in the vocal booth at the same time. No, it's probably early, you know, digital recording technology, wow. passing the files around and whatever. But, you know, the fact that he got all those people to do it with him. Yeah. And the New York crowd, Ato Lindsay and those kind of people. I mean, you've, you've, you know, had this uh, very prestigious career working for big businesses like CompuServe and O2. There can't be many people who saw Grand Funk Railroad uh, <laughs> at the Inglewood Forum who are working in, in that space. I mean, do you think you have a very different perspective on the way pop culture has kind of unfolded in, you know, since, you know, the mid-90s? Ooh. That's a very open question. I've never really thought about it in those terms. I'm just kind of fascinated watching pop culture unroll and reveal itself on an ongoing basis. You know, I think a lot of a lot of the modern a lot of modern pop music leaves me cold because of uh, you know it, it's that digital approach I find very deadening. There's no air. There's no space in any of it. From a from a craft work electronic viewpoint, a lot of it's fascinating. I mean, you know. And there are certain people like Mark Ronson and that who have an incredible ability to kind of put jigsaw puzzles together. And it's not aimed at me. It's aimed at some kid who's 15. You know, and, and so I appreciate the good stuff. I'm in awe of some of it. Gaga, I think, makes some amazing records. Ronson well, makes funny, some amazing records. Funny you should mention records. Lady. Did you say Lady Gaga? Yeah. So <laughs> funny I'm you should ignoring, mention. I'm ignoring the prompt. I'll come back to it. <laughs> uh, what I do like seeing, what I do like seeing, are the things that consistently carry on. There's there are there are lots of funny. You know, ego still runs rampant. Hooray! <laughs> you know, where's what would life be without an unreasonable pop star? <laughs> well, I mean, Lady Gaga is a fascinating pop star. As it happens, she's releasing her first album in what is it like four or five years? Tomorrow, if you don't, if you don't count the soundtrack, to if you don't film. count the soundtrack to a star is born. So we're featuring her, John. We might as well just just kind of skip through this since you're talking about modern pop. I had to watch a star is born earlier this week and um, emerge from it with a, you know, a slightly more respect, I think, than I had. I and mean, I do think she's interesting, but John, rather like you, a lot of the huge sort of electro pop hits that she's had, they. they they do leave me a bit cold. Um, maybe I am just too too old to kind of hear them or appreciate them. I mean, do you think that she's done more interesting or different things from, say, like Madonna, who would be her her kind of most obvious mm. forebear? Mm. Well, Bad Romance is just a great record, pure and yeah. simple. Yeah. And, and a phenomenal video to it as well. Yes. 
it doesn't come across to me that she's been as varied as Madonna. You know, Madonna had the whole sex period and, and the um, Justify Your Love, and then she did Vogue. And, you know, she's really been on the – Madonna's been on the tip of changes and helped yeah. make them popular. Gaga, not so much in the sense of, of bouncing across genres and, and picking up tips from here and there. I think The Star is Born, the soundtrack, is it's a great rock and roll record in a way. And in a way, it's a great rock and roll biopic <laughs> with fictional people makes it easier. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I want to bring Jasper in here as someone who, as I occasionally point out, is slightly <laughs> younger than, than us. And just ask what your, what your sort of take on Lady Gaga is, Jasper. Well, so those early singles were massive when I was still at school and it was not really the kind of music that I was into. But listening back, I listened to a few of them this morning and actually some of them, like Bad Romance is great and there are a couple of others where it is like that. That is a great pop sound. But I think that the key thing about Lady Gaga as compared to some other pop stars is that she does seem to really enjoy what she's doing. And you kind of say she she moved from one genre to another, but she does seem to like flitting about and doing random things that she thinks will be fun, like a duet with Tony Bennett mm. for The Lady is a Tramp. And then doing Whole this album film. Whole with Tony Bennett, in fact. Yeah, I, I mean, mm. I, I think there's kind of other stuff going on as well. She's, she's in a way, a sort of very self-conscious art project. Absolutely. You know, uh, and I mean, and, and she's, she's a magnificent thief. I mean, for example, everyone thinks she's the person who in, invented the meat dress, which she wasn't. She just stole that idea, but sort of then pervades it out to a broader oh, thing. We've all um, worn meat dresses. We, we've all worn meat dresses. In fact, I'm wearing one right now. But um, <laughs> I, I saw this uh, d- documentary, uh, Gaga, Five Foot Two, on Netflix uh, a few weeks ago. And it was fairly depressing. She's relentlessly solipsistic. There are nice things about her in that she really genuinely seems to care for her fans, has, yeah. has a real engagement with her fans she's surrounded by people saying yes exactly john what you were saying earlier about sakamoto you know she's surrounded by people saying yes she's in the studio with mark ronson funnily enough you know doing whatever she was doing at the time she was in the process of one of her image reinventions stripping away all of the sort of glitz that she had been famous for and was suddenly going for a sort of completely reduced, almost punkish sort of look. Mm-hmm. And eventually I just found the thing really boring. <laughs> you know, uh, it just... It, it, that sort I mean, of self-involvement... Isn't that, partly, isn't that partly just because it's, in some sense, it's something that you've seen before, whereas for people Quite of my generation who hadn't seen that before, those changes and her not really giving a fuck... And, you know, there was all sorts of controversy about... Oh, but she gives about, such a fuck. Does, you know, she gives is, such a fuck. She really well, relentlessly gives a fuck. I mean, she's I mean, so <laughs> self-conscious about how people are perceiving her. That's all she talks about. You know, but she's looking to push some boundaries by doing that, and she's, she's looking to... Yeah, but that's not the same as know, not giving be, a fuck. I mean, it's sort of is and sort of isn't. It, <laughs> she wants to what you talk about loving her fans, she is genuinely, I think, keen to show people that they can do stuff even if they don't think they can. She, she, wants, she, wants, she wants massive amounts of approval is what she wants. Were any of you surprised? Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, you want sure. approval. But, I, want but, I mean, approval. that's just that's just a given for the pop idiom. That's the, I mean, pop. Literally, it's in the name. You know, yeah. I don't think that really sits as a yeah. as a criticism okay, of a I, pop I, star. I, I, I found that ultimately, in this watching the documentary, I found her boring. Was anyone surprised 
by A Star Is Born that she went back to, well, she did something that was, in a sense, quite retrogressive. You know, it was quite mainstream in terms of, of its music. Certainly Bradley Cooper's figure was very, like, mainstream Americana rock. It seemed like an odd choice for someone who visually and kind of iconographically had been so radical, Lady Gaga. It's quite a straight role. Yeah, I think so. I was also, I think she just was, she did well in that role, actually. I agree. I, thought, I, thought I was, was surprised amazing. by just how much I bought the character that she was yeah. playing for a very mainstream film, as you say. You know, she isn't there with blue hair and, you know, a conical bra and all that stuff. But she, there, was, there was something convincing about it, even though, you know, it's not my kind of film. Usually, did you see really, it, but... John? Oh, yeah. In the yeah. context of Gaga, her doing a mainstream role is groundbreaking. She's <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. I, I think it's quite I, smart. I think the biggest, the biggest problem with The Star is Born, that if you've seen an earlier version, you know how it ends. You know, you just sort of kind Excellent. of waiting. You're waiting for all the key points. You know, the, the, he, comes, he comes to her award when he's drunk. Uh, he goes, he dies at the end, and she spoiler becomes alert. Mrs. Norman Maine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry to spoil it for everybody who hasn't seen it. <laughs> does the male character, does he die in all four of the films? Yeah. He yeah, does. No, it's, it's, I, I've it's only very... seen the Garland one, and I've seen the Streisand and John and yeah, the Frederick one. March one. Uh, not yeah, it's the blueprint, and in fact, it's based on a previous film that was not a musical. One interesting thing about watching the documentary is, as a songwriter, she's actually a really ordinary piano-driven singer-songwriter of the old school type, and it's the productions which make them sound radical. Because you take that all that the production away, and she sits at the piano and sings these absolutely sort of by rote singer song, vaguely Carol Kingish yeah. songs. There's one. Look, what I found in the movie was the one that struck me as most kind of Carol Kingish in a way. Mm-hmm. But it is good. It's a good, good ersatz Carol King. <laughs> ersatz. I'm alone in my house. So just quickly, we've got three pieces about the girl born Joanne Germa Jota. If I pronounce it, Ger- I can't pronounce it. Isn't it Germanotta? Germanotta. All right, let me say that again. The girl Germanotta. born Joanna Germanotta. And the first of them is the redoubtable Caroline Sullivan hailing these female solo artists who are all essentially working with synthesizers and and Caroline's seizing onto this as evidence that the male guitar band is dead. The future is electro female DIY and very in your face. And she actually gets Lady Gaga on the phone from San Diego. And it was an interesting moment because, yeah, I mean, Male guitar quartets had become pretty moribund at that point. And it was a breath of fresh air. It was an injection of something new, I think. And I don't suppose anyone saw Lady Gaga becoming the massive superstar at that point that she, that she was going to be. I was just going to add, the thing that always interested me about with Gaga is that she came over here and spent a long time in London, over a month or a couple of months, and she appeared on Jonathan Ross and so forth. And she had this incredibly ornate teacup with a saucer. 
and she carried it on to, onto the set with when sat down on the couch opposite Ross, and with the, the little finger up, would be sipping from it. And then two days later, she's filmed getting out of a taxi cab at somewhere like Buckingham Palace, and she's got the damn teacup in her hand. And for, the, for like literally three weeks or so, there was not a, a picture or a video or an appearance at that teacup was not in a fan i just thought this is brrilliant because everybody starts talking about funny. the teacup yeah very it's, funny. It's, it was it, it, absolutely it's genius. quite clever and yeah it's 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 a fun thing to do i yeah, think you know and i think it's that's the key in many you know it's it's the same with someone like elvis costello you put on the glasses you never take the glasses off and everything comes becomes about the glasses in her case, it all became about the teacup. To go back to what you were saying earlier, Mark, about, about her being, you know, giving a fuck, but I think she, she is very self-aware in that sense. She mm. does... Oh, yeah. She is pushing people's buttons intentionally oh, yeah. with stuff like the teacup or whatever she's doing at any given moment. She's, she kind of knows what she's doing and she's working it, that whole yeah. media circus. She's working it to her own advantage. That's true enough, In yeah. quite clever ways, yeah. <laughs> Just a brief name check for Kate Allen, who used to work for Roxback Pages. So the, the third and last of the Gaga pieces is a, is a piece that Kate wrote for a publication called Planet Notion in 2014. And it's a really nice little piece about the risky business of Lady Gaga's performance art. In a sense, that's what she is, a performance artist. So, yeah, anyway. It's, it's, it's worth pointing out that Kate Allen made the very rational decision to get out of Roxback Pages and become an entertainment lawyer. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we may need to hire her at some point. Anyway, this is a shout-out to Kate. We miss you. And yeah. It's lovely to have some of your pieces on the site. She was a real pop princess too, wasn't she? She was yes. school of Caroline Sullivan. Very much. Not very a lot much. of time for male guitar bands. But we no. are going to go back to the sort of world of so dreary male male musicians now, aren't we, Mark? Because we're going to talk about the week's audio interview and it's yeah. going to take us back to the early 70s. Yes, Martin Aston interviewing the great John Peel, legendary inverted commas DJ, in July 1989. And it's it's it, it, they're having... By the way, they're eating in a restaurant, so there's quite a lot of background noise. And also, every now and again, Peel's got a mouthful of food that he has to sort of struggle through to sort of get what he wants out. <laughs> and and he, It's just the authentic interview experience. Well, yes. absolutely. He talks about, in a way, the curious thing about this interview is I think Martin Aston thought of John Peel in a way that John Peel doesn't think of himself. So there's a lot of sort of like negotiating thing as, you know, is he a figurehead? Is he this? Is he that? And John's always saying, no, I'm basically, I'm a fan. You know, I, I, I like stuff because I like it. There's no agenda behind it. There's no attempt at sort of creating a culture or anything like that. He has no intellectual response to pop at all. You know, it's it just, does he like this record or doesn't he like this record? And he's going through a time when this interview took place, where the stuff he was liking was getting noisier and noisier and noisier. One of the things he had to contend with a little bit was that once he'd become the guy who played, you know, every scratchy, abrasive new indie single that was that was coming out, some people remembered that back in you know, 1971, he was sort of playing 
Gong and Super Tramp. And, Absolutely. I mean, I remember him playing Peter Frampton's Show Me the Way, you know. And, and in a sense, he had to. <laughs> I, so I'm not the, sure. No, I'm not sure he went that far. Actually. He did. I, trust did he? me, he, he played did. Show Me the Way. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. My hand on my heart. Yeah, and I mean, the first of the clips, in a sense, yeah. kind of, he talks about. He talks about playing crap, doesn't he? So maybe we should uh, just well, hear that, and it would kind yeah, of orient... Absolutely. And also in, in he talks that. about his label dandelion, and uh, Aston challenges him, and he actually vigorously defends his signing choices from 1971. If you look back through the history of the programme, I've played so much <laughs> crap... Um, but in amongst the crap, there's been uh, there's been some you know some real gems as well. Who would you call crap? I mean, what areas? Well, I think you only see that like a decade or so later. So, from there are a lot of singer-songwritery kind of things that I played at the beginning of the 70s. People obviously weren't around at the time. I can't imagine what the 70s, early 70s were like. Do you mean they're like Philip Goodhand Tate or Oh no, Philip Goodhand Tate. Philip Goodhand Tate was good in the Stormsville Shakers days. But it's perhaps crap's too strong a word, but but it's. A lot of stuff which now I mean I, I blush prettily to the roots of my hair when I hear these uh, when I hear some of these things. Well, surely yeah, I'm surely when people mention the, the uh, label dandelion, you must similarly. Oh, not at all. No, no? Some things on dandelion that I'm uh, quite proud of. I mean, those uh, stack body I, I thought were wonderful then. Still think it's wonderful. Do you remember stack body? <laughs> I love that. Classic peel. I, I, I would blush prettily to the roots of my hair. Classic peel. John, yeah. tell us tell us about John Peel and what your first awareness of, of this amazing underground DJ was. Uh, back in LA, I'd met a, through, through science fiction fandom, I'd met Greg Shaw, who... Huh. Who started what we all agree is the first rock and roll magazine, Mojo Navigator Rock and Roll News, which was contemporary to Crawdaddy. And I used to, Greg lived in San Francisco. So I would get a bunch of records to trade in, fly up to San Francisco, uh, stay with Greg, and we would go to Village Music, I think it was called, in, in Mill Valley, and I would sell all my records to pay for the trip. And in one of those, he said, I found this new magazine called Zigzag. And so we started reading Zig, looking through it. And in that was John Peel talking about, um, I think, Dandelion Records or possibly <laughs> Tyrannosaurus Rex. Yes. That was my first encounter with John. And I know what it was. He was talking about Neil Young. And he, pro- he proposed this theory that musicians really only grew into their, their full strengths when they made their third album. Because by then they knew how to make a record and they, they were forced to write uh, the songs to match that. They had the experience by then that forced is probably the wrong word. But they grew into, to they grew into their, um, the peak of their, their, their creative strengths. Right. So that was John. And then when, when I was, came to London, at the time he was writing a column in Sounds every week. And he also wrote in Punch. He was writing a regular column. And he was just he's such a great writer. He was very funny. And quite droll. And so I, 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 that was where I really picked up on, on kind of interacting with, with John Peel as we know him. 
And I mean, we met a few, quite a few times over the years and, you know, social situations, shared a drink and all the rest of it. And it was, even then, it was kind of like he was the guy that would play stuff that you, no one else would play or that you didn't hear anywhere else. I can remember that, you know, he played a South African record, the Mohatala Queens, in 1975. Yeah. And it was like, go on, admit you like it. <laughs> that was his comment. <laughs> I thought, That's such a great comment. I mean, for any younger or any listeners who just don't really know how important Peel was, I think, you know, Mark, you know, you and I could both say that that Peel was was sort of it was essential. It was mandatory listening. I mean, I discovered so many things. You know, I had this little transistor radio. Probably started listening to him in about seventy three, I think. And just every night, I would go to bed. He had the the, the show on Radio One. I think it was yeah. a ten o'clock start, and I would just my it would be glued to this, and I just I, mean, I would know, write down what he was playing. I mean, sure. and that, I think. Thousands well, of people could say the same thing. Yes, you and many, many people. I have to say, not myself. I sort of never really got into John Peel okay. for some reason. I wasn't really a great radio listener. I know it sounds kind of strange, but I wasn't one of those people who kind of like had a ear. I and mean, when I was younger, I was listening. When I was, I mean, by younger, I mean a lot younger. I was like 11, 12. I'd be listening to Radio Luxembourg on my transistor radio when, you know. Yes. But, but, I sort of hated the sound of the transistor radio. I sort of hated DJs. I hated the bullshit talk between the records. And I sort of stopped listening to the radio. So Peel sort of passed me by. I, I was totally unaware of his transition when he'd kind of discovered punk and stopped playing Gentle Giant and started playing the Sex Pistols, you know. All of this stuff really passed me by. But I've subsequently, I'm well aware of his importance. I mean, I think he's an incredibly important person. Shall we hear the second clip? Because, because Martin talks to him about being this kind of having become, or this role of being this sort of figurehead of kind of indie alternative music has been slightly imposed on him. Which and he rejects. He, which he slightly it's rejects. It's quite funny. John Peel basically is the uh, figurehead for what is known as alternative music or independent music. It's not a role that I, it's not a role that I no, 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 of course it's not a way no. that I defend this, you know, I'd, I'd sort of... Uh, no, but it's... it's no, but it's been hoisted on you because mm. you've carried, I mean, you know, you've been going longer than any other DJ on, on Radio 1, therefore you are perceived as um, a champion. Well, yes, it used to be possible to get a to buy a publication in Germany where I also did programs. There was something, of course, something like 132 things to do rather than listen to the rock dictator John Peel. <laughs> He's always self-deprecating. That was one of his charms, although you, yeah. start, you did wonder sometimes whether it was a little bit manufactured. Uh, well, I like his accent. Because like he went his accent. He went to Shrewsbury, I mean, and yet he kind of speaks in this kind of broad scouse, which is, it has to be said, utter bullshit. Well, it's you an know, entire I remember, affectation. I remember doing a profile on him and talking to John Walters, who is his producer, and he said that he told us that this is the archetypal John Peel story. Peel had been, uh, had been, someone had bought him a first class train ticket to go up to Liverpool or wherever it was in the north. And he looked at it rather sort of wistfully and said to, isn't there any way I could get a, a, an, an economy or third class ticket, please? You know, I mean, he just he couldn't bear the idea of being in first class. You know, yes, and, uh, the Salopian John Peel. I think <laughs> <we should. laughs> so, I mean, 
John, so you you knew him a little bit. You, you you met him a few times. I mean, you know, can can you assess? Do you know just his role in? I suppose we would would say the kind of punk post punk years, right through into the eighties. He would play anything. He'd play hip hop. He'd play industrial music. He'd play death metal. He really would play anything that just kind of amused him or intrigued him. I always I always went. Yeah, well, that was the great sort of grace of him was that he would play everything and anything. But I felt frequently as I would listen to a lot of this, these less than spectacular records, was what does he really like? You know, it was quite, <laughs> it got to the point where I lost track of who, what his taste was, which I think is really important in, in a DJ who has a lot of influence and power. You know, once you understand what they think is good and, and what they're, their own tastes are, then you can start to make assumptions around your feelings and your taste. And because he was just so broad, as he got more and more into just playing, it always felt to me like he got to a point where he would play anything and he made no value judgments at all. And at that point, I found it really hard to start wondering what the things of value were that he was playing. I guess it's hard if someone isn't committed to what they're playing you, hard to see why you should be committed to listening to them playing it to you. yeah. I used to listen to him on the on the car radio driving home, and so uh, and that was where I kind of started thinking that that idea that well why why should I listen to this guy because it's just you know I don't like most of what I'm hearing, although you know you might want to persevere if you think this uh, if you're you're educated from the DJ's perspective as to why it's got value. I think if you saw a list of bands who played sessions for John Peel, yes, there'll be some standout names but also be probably a huge number, which you have no memory of whatsoever because that was the only thing they did. They sent a tape to John Peel. He put them into the Maida Vale Studios, did a session, and that was it because they were of, of little value. They were, they were no good. I mean, my feeling was that by, by whenever I wrote this profile of him, which would have been about the, just as we went into the 21st century, and he was doing that Home Truths show on Radio 4, that there was a sense that, that many people just listened to John Peel's show, not really for the music, but just, just for John Peel. Mm-hmm. There was something comforting, um, almost avuncular about, about Peel. And people just wanted to have him kind of, you know, talking away in the background in between <laughs> in between like dub reggae records and napalm death records <laughs> <laughs> anyway it's 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 a, it's a good interview it's really worth it he's he does good interviews unsurprisingly you know the guy the guy can talk weird the, the the radio broadcaster exactly. can talk sure. <laughs> <laughs> pretty astounding well so great and we'll we'll hear a clip right at the end where he's just talking about his, you know, continued worship of musicians, essentially. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's all I am as a fan. So, Mark, tell us yeah. about some of your highlights of the week. Yeah, well, the first one's a real highlight. It's what's almost certainly the very last interview that Nat King Cole ever did. Wow. With Ivor Davis for the Daily Express in 1965. Very sad. And Nat says... Greetings to the outside world. I was just contemplating it down there, and I can't wait to rejoin. I will in a few more weeks. Now, he's in hospital. He's just had a lung removed. What he and Ivor Davis didn't know, but which Nat Cole's wife and doctor knew, was that he was dying. In fact, he died within about four days of the interview taking place. Oh, my God. So so that's, that's really something. 
Penny Valentine's interviewing all but one of the people who are participating in the Walker Brothers tour, which includes Jimi Hendrix Experience and Ingelbert Humperdinck, among others. And uh, Jimi Hendrix is talking. He says, I'm a bit worried about the type of people who are going to see the tour. If they come to see the Walker Brothers, then they're not going to want us, which I suspect was pretty true. Mm. And next one's fantastic. Philip Elwood. Now, John, this is interesting because Philip Elwood wrote for the San Francisco Examiner. And we got him on board recently. He's dead by his sons. Uh, he saw a number of things you saw. He saw the Aretha Franklin 71 West, film or West mm-hmm. show. He also saw the Winterland Sex Pistols last ever show. Among yeah, I was there at that one too. Yeah, indeed. And he sees Miles Davis supporting the Grateful Dead. Now, this is really quite a significant show. There's a lot of people talk about it. It was the very first time Miles played in a rock and roll ballroom to a, basically a rock crowd that Bill yeah. Graham put him on. Philip Elwood's just loves it. He says, there were fragments of some of Davis's recent recorded material in the marvellous montage last night. But one doesn't say, what's the name of that tune when listening to Miles? There's too much to hear as it is. He loves them. He's actually quite a fan of the Deads, but he says half the audience, probably including him, walked out after Miles' set. The Dead, I know, were mortified that Miles was supporting them because they all worshipped them. Absolutely. And Jerry Garcia became quite a good friend of Miles Davis subsequently. And the only rock band Miles Davis has any time for in his autobiography is The Grateful Dead. Well, it's, it's worth remembering Phil Lesh, the bass player, went to school with Philip Glass. I mean, that's the level of education he's got. And Jerry Garcia was really well known in that whole Bay Area as a bluegrass player and a folk, a folk musician. I mean, they, you know, they came into the band with incredible background and credentials. Yeah, I'm, I've got to be honest, I'm a bit of a deadhead. I mean, everything they did from 68 to 72, I kind of love. Yeah. And I love the live stuff, particularly. But anyway, it's, it's, I'm really glad to have got, got that thing in because it's talked about quite a lot still as this sort of quite kind of pivotal moment. Yeah. Moving on again, Philip Elwood, 76, he interviews Cab Calloway. No, I just love it. have an interview with Cab to have Cab Calloway on the site, you know. That's great, and, it's and, super. And Calloway says, that Reefer Man song was a typical midnight show thing. I think kids know it now because it's part of the Betty Boop cartoon soundtrack. He says, in 47, I went from being a guy whose gross was 200,000 bucks a year, someone who couldn't get a booking. And that's absolutely spot on. The, the end of the big bands was basically then. And suddenly, yep. Bebop came in, the big bands went yep. out, guys yep. like him couldn't get arrested. Very pleased to get this. Man, is that the Reaper Man? That's the Reaper Man. I believe he's losing his mind. I think he's lost his mind. Losing Soul, 1984. David Nathan interviewing Maurice White of Earth, Wind and Fire. Well, kind of, sort of ex of Earth, Wind and Fire, because they were had gone into sort of abeyance at this point. And the reasons were, essentially, they weren't doing as well as they had been. But these things are relative. So Marie says, when Powerlight did just 900,000, we were concerned. It was a letdown. And to be honest, we felt a little rejected and a little deflated. Oh. 900,000 records. Hmm. Rejected. Uh, rejected. Complete, uh, out, outright rejection. <laughs> 900,000 records sold. And lastly, Stephen Dalton talking to the Aphex twin, Enemy 96. Ah. And it's just... He's, I, he, he gives great interview always. Uh, well, um, Barney, remind me of his, 
his real name. Richard James. I read this interview, actually. Richard D. James. Richard D. James, yeah. I'm, I'm a huge <laughs> Aphex fan. Oh, yeah. He's a sort of acceptable, berserk, techno genius for older people, I think. And he is genuinely kind of nutty and uh, fascinating character. And I really like this interview. Actually, he comes over as quite accommodating and friendly in this interview. In some, he's, he's sort of willfully difficult. He um, can be pretty standoffish yes. in the interview. And he's not in this one. I mean, Interesting. He, he, he's very curious because he's very dismissive of the culture within which he's working. I haven't got a quote in front of me to say this, but there's this notion that all the other people working, you know, he's just not interested. He's, he's got a very purest interest in sound. Yes. yes. Almost for its own sake. Well, the poor quote that, we've, that we're going to put on the home page, he says, everyone tries really hard in techno and never gets anywhere. They're the most insecure section of music makers out there. Um, <laughs> another <laughs> idea of, of the legions of insecure yeah. techno musicians. I mean, I find it interesting that he's one of the few people working that territory who you know of, you know, because it's such a sort of personality-free zone, so yes. much of that sort of dance music. He is a real and personality, for yeah, sure. definitely. Are you aware of, of Richard James's oeuvre, John? Early Aphex Twin, yes. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then around the time he did, what was it called, something sticker? Window Licker. Window Licker. Which <laughs> I thought was... <laughs> that's, that's where we parted company. Do you, oh, I thought Window Licker is probably the greatest thing he ever did. It's absolutely magnificent. But I did love the selected ambient audio works, I thought were... Were pretty great. I mean, it's probably where I. And they came still in. stand up, actually, for something that for for electronic music recorded in the late eighties, early early nineties. Yeah. The sound of them is just still like really present and really there. And some of it's so beautiful. I think you know, yeah. there's a, there's really abrasive, juddering, insane stuff that he does, of course. But there are these really beautiful, almost kind of wistful things. On it's always set off them. against each other as well. It'll go from one to the other in seconds and suddenly you're just being bashed about the face by these glitchy kind yes. of... Yeah, I think it's really exciting. He says this one thing, he says, I like to make music that sounds like you're tripping and reminds you of being off your face on acid because I love that mood. But you can't make music when you're in that state. Well, tell that to Grateful <laughs> Dead. Clearly he's yeah. trying. I was going to say, yeah. tell that to Ministry. <laughs> <laughs> that's, 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 that's my lot what do you guys got well Jasper I'm going to hand straight over to you in the interests of, of getting I'll just mention a couple of things quickly just because I added some articles about bands I really like basically Phoenix an interview in 2000 relatively early interview Lisa Verico chats to a French band the stand first is Phoenix are French and funky and like some very uncool records indeed and I think that speaks to something that we kind of talked about previously with with musicians of that like daft punk as well liking a bunch of records like super tramp and kind of being very much looking backwards to a sound that they then combined with the new electronic sounds that's an interesting short interview we listened mainly to hip-hop when we were making the album says darcy traditionally rock bands don't bother much about sound in house and hip-hop the production is part of the songwriting process when we start a track we think as much about how it will sound as what chords we will play yeah then he claims that's why we're not retro anyone who says we are is wrong so you know i really like the kind first of... phoenix album i have to say i like that first um united there's a great song that really kind of almost does tie in with that idea of them being proto yacht rock which was which is i think it was called too young was the first single from it it's like kind of la 
I'd call it yacht pop more than than, than yacht rock. <laughs> yeah, but, but I, they were great. I thought they were really interesting. I think so too. And I, I like you have a soft spot for that kind of yachtish, kind of shiny production. Moving on to 2001, a live review of Ali Farka Toure. Adam Sweeting goes to see him in London. And it's a rather sort of sweet thing because, you know, he seems to enjoy himself on stage. But, quote, it has become increasingly difficult to prize Malian guitarist Ali Farka Toure away from the rural life in his home village of Neofunke. Music is very important to me, but my profession is agriculture who spends most of his time irrigating chunks of the Sahara Desert. So it's sort of an interesting look at, <laughs> you know, him as musician versus him as, you know, agriculturalist. <laughs> um, but he it gives a good gig, and I, I really like some of his music. It's just a nice sound, kind of bluesy. I'm sure I wouldn't I, I love, him I, as much uh, as a farmer as, as a musician, I think. But I love, I do love <laughs> his records. I mean, yeah. you know... <laughs> the, the record he did with Ry Kuda was, was, was pretty special, I think. You know? Yeah, I agree. 2005, Daft Punk, the aforementioned, a review of Human After All. And it's a much maligned album, Human After All, their sort of third album where it's not, it's not got the kind of groundbreaking electro sound that Homework did and it's not got this shiny disco thing that Discovery did. But actually, Stephen Dalton reviewing it in The Times, it's just a sort of short capsule review, but he does get some stuff that a lot of people didn't get that he says there is less conceptual baggage here than on Discovery, but Human After All is still dominated by glistening peons to the joys of machinery, from the thumping video arcade riffs of Robot Rock to the helium-voiced vocoder rap of Technologic. It is shamelessly synthetic, but magnifique too. I think actually it's a better record than most critics gave it credit for at the time, and most listeners sort of skip over it. You go straight from Discovery to Random Access Memories, and but actually... Where it comes most into its own is on the live album, Alive 2007, when it's combined with other stuff. It does, there are some really great ideas in there, at least. So I thought it was nice to get a review of that album. In. Daft Punk fan, John? Yeah, not, not following them particularly, but very much like what I heard. And of course, you know, the whole Let's Get Lucky in that album is just extraordinary. I agree. I the agree. right record at the right time of the year. Yeah, mm. absolutely. And then lastly, just because it's a complete left field of everything <laughs> else. About, we're running out of time, Cap. Yeah, I know. I, know I, I just, I, I really, you know, I, there's me self-censoring. <laughs> I really can't resist mentioning this piece I've added about George Russell and his Lydian chromatic concept of tonal organisation. Thank God you got that in, Justin. This, this yeah, episode I just, I would, have been, would have been much I poorer just, for the lack of that. But, I mean, it's really important stuff, actually. I mean, it's to, the history of modal jazz wouldn't be the same without George Russell and the Lydian chromatic concept of tonal organisation. So, you know, I think it's... Just trips off the tongue. Oh, James Brown, if you agree with Jerry Wexler. Anyway, I mean, I won't... The mood is such that I shan't go into oh, it. Oh, God, um, <laughs> get, get chromatic no, it's, just, it's just the complete remastered recordings reviewed by Rob Young in The Wire in 2011. And if you like Miles Davis, John Coltrane, etc., but you don't know George Russell, there's a sort of gap in, in that... And I don't think he's really mentioned enough because people always know about What the, generation you know, is George Russell, Jasper? Can you just put that in context for us? Born 1923, so a bit slightly older, 
same generation as like Gil Evans, Charlie Parker, all, people like that. Yeah, yeah. Parker, yeah. Mm. So that sort of early early bebop, but he gave. I think he gave up drumming after he heard Max Roach playing, which I think is sort of fair enough, <laughs> <laughs> fair enough thing to do. Anyway, George Russell, great, and a review of just of, of his of his of his complete recorded works as a re-release in the wire. Wonderful. Well, I we probably should finish up now, John. I mean, it's just been a delight having you on the show. You've had an extraordinary life, and you you've talked brilliantly about some points along the way yeah it's just an honor to have you on rbp and lovely to have you in the virtual cupboard as i said come back and see us again soon etc and i think mark you're gonna you're gonna take us out with the last peel clip yeah i mean this is we we, we talked about it earlier but it's it's basically about how he's always been primarily a fan and just loved musicians and is still in awe of what they do that's essentially it so we'll see you next week have we got a guest next week Barry? well as things stand we have danny baker coming into the cupboard next week mm. i'll believe that when i see his face on my computer <laughs> screen <laughs> but he, he has said he will join us next week so that would be brilliant i'm looking forward to that and hope it happens but john thanks so much again yeah. for coming well, in you. any thank parting you. words for our vast listenership. Well, I, was, I, was, I was listening to, uh, and, and you were just, you know, ch- name checking various pieces. I'll leave you with a book to recommend called The Chitlin Circuit by Preston Lauterbach, which is a really well written and researched history of literally the Chitlin Circuit in the 20th wow. century and the Afro American musician experience. Sounds the great. key points being you will find out the discovery of Al Green. And, the, and how they got him to Memphis and recording, and the history of James Brown as to why he's the hardest working man in show business and why they're called the famous flames. And I'll leave you with that. Fantastic. That's great. Super. Um, well, thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Great, great, great to have you on, John, as, yeah. as Barney said. We'll, we'll see all of our listeners will hear us next week. Hopefully, thank Danny you for Baker. Until me. then, thanks, thanks ah, for joining ah, us. Cheers. Thank thanks, you very John. Much Bye. For Bye-bye. Bye. Marquis Smith walked in here now and, and sat down at this t- I should be awestruck. I mean, genuinely, I said, it sounds like you're saying these things for Africa, you know, because they look good in print. But it's not so. I should be just it's probably rendered speechless. You know, I mean, and, and uh, I quite like that in myself, in a way, because I like still being, I suppose, naive in a way. I like being a fan, you know. I think if I stopped being a fan... Uh, I mean, Walters always says uh, in interviews and so on that uh, um, the programme would be in real problems if I ever reached puberty, <laughs> and, uh, which is uh, it's always quite a clever thing to say. But it's not a million miles from the truth, really. I mean, it is case, like in, in a way, it's a case of sort of arrested development, if you like. But I, I like the idea of still being excited by it. That was John Peel in conversation with Martin Aston in 1989, concluding this week's Rock's Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest John Ingham. Stay at home and buy his book, Spirit of 76. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rock's Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com.